At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. All hail King Jesus. All hail the Savior of the world. Thank you, Ben. What a great song to start our Good Friday service. So when we take a look at the history of our nation, certain presidents stand out among the rest. Some because of their achievements, others not so much. Are you familiar with President William Henry Harrison? You're not? You should be. He has the longest recorded inaugural address in U.S. history. Two hours in the cold and the rain. And he died of pneumonia 30 days later. You can chuckle. It's been long enough. It's okay. Or Richard Nixon resigning in disgrace because of the Watergate scandal. Or my favorite, our 29th president, Warren G. Harding, a corrupt and womanizing man whose spectacular ineptitude was so bad, he, he himself said, and I quote, I am not fit for office and should never have been here. <laughs> Would have been nice to know before we voted for you. In today's message, we'll look at a man who makes these guys look like geniuses. A government leader whose weakness and lack of leadership facilitated the death of an innocent man and allowed a criminal to go free. His name is Pontius Pilate. Now we'll see how his selfish desires and his political motivations allowed Jesus to suffer and die, yet at the same time put into motion the incredible redemptive plan of our God. Now we're in a current sermon series called The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, and we've been reviewing some fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith. And we're using the Apostles' Creed as a guide. Now this creed was used by the early church to help orient new believers as they grasped with the new truths that they were learning and also protect them from false teaching. Now to be clear, the truths that we are going over are not true because they are in the Apostles' Creed. They're true because they come from Scripture, God's Holy Word. That's why they're true. We're only using the creed as a jumping off point. In fact, if you were here last, year, uh, last week, or last year, but last week specifically, Pastor talked about his splunking adventures in a cave on his grandfather's property and how he would go splunking. I like to think of it this way. We want to go splunking into the depths of Scripture, and the Apostles' Creed is just opening the cave for us. Now, today's portion of the Creed reveals three truths, each one guiding us along the progression that Jesus made in the final hours before his death. Now, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea, and he was tasked with keeping the conquered Jewish population under control. It was an acrimonious relationship. They despised him, and he provoked them whenever he had a chance. Now, at the same time, the Jewish religious leaders had grown tired of Jesus, his claim to be God, his persistent acceptance of those on the outside, his constant pointing out their hypocrisies. Jesus was a threat to their authority, and they'd had enough. They arrested him on trumped-up charges and brought him before Pilate. Now, you might be asking, why bring him before Pilate if there was so much animosity between them? Well, they had to grovel before Pilate because they wanted to see Jesus crucified. And Pilate was the only one who had the authority to make that happen. This sets the stage for the morning of the Passover where Jesus and Pilate were face-to-face. -face. 
And Pilate grilled Jesus with question after question. Who are you? Why are you here? Are you the, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus stood firm with his answers so strong and so clear that Pilate had to acknowledge his innocence. Now, at this point, a leader of integrity would dismiss the case because there was no merit, regardless of how the crowd would respond. Instead, Pilate thought to himself, how can I weasel my way through? Well, he probably didn't use the word weasel. How can I maneuver my way through this messy situation without losing any political clout? And then he thought, I got it. I got it. See, the Romans had this tradition every Passover of allowing a Jewish prisoner to go free. Sort of like a can't we all get along kind of thing. And so Pilate thought to himself, um, we have a prisoner, Brabus. He's a bad guy, a robber, an insurrectionist, and a murderer. And he thought to himself, surely, if I give the crowd a chance to choose between Jesus and Brabus, of course they're going to choose Jesus. Of course. I am so smart. Caesar's going to be like, Pilate, you are the man. We're going to make a statue for you. We're going to give you a raise. So he asked the crowd, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Brabus? And they said, Brabus. Whoops. And that miscalculation put into motion what happens next. And that leads to our first text that we're going to read this morning. First, I'm not, not first John. John 19, 1 through 5. And it's on the screen behind me. John 19, 1 through 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. This is our first truth that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Even though Pilate had deemed Jesus innocent, his true character is now being revealed. He orders Jesus flogged and then he allows his soldiers to engage in further cruelty by beating and mocking In Luke's gospel, we actually get some inside information. We get some motives on why Pilate is doing this. Luke tells us that Pilate was hoping to appease the Jews by punishing Jesus severely. Now, Matthew gives us some more detail on the suffering that Christ endured by declaring himself God and king. And we see that in Matthew 27, 27 through 30. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus, and the governor being Pilate, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, a couple hundred soldiers, And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. Pilate oversaw this cruel display of mockery and violence. And the Roman soldiers were too happy to oblige. I mean, the opportunity to to ridicule and abuse a Jew who called himself king? They were all about that. Pilate assumed the sight of Jesus in this brutalized condition would avoid a crucifixion. That's why he showed showed Jesus to the crowd. He was basically saying, look at this man, look at him. What possible threat could he be to you now? But as we'll find out more when Glenn speaks in a bit, Pilate once again showed his weakness, misjudging the crowd and the entire situation and paving the way for the inevitable crucifixion. Now when Pilate prays the mocked and beaten Jesus in front of the crowd and says, behold the man... I believe John is kind of doing the same thing in a way with us. He is saying, look at this story. Look at the God become man. The humble, living, loving God come to earth, still fully God, but also fully man coming to earth to suffer 
for our sake. And John is asking, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that when you read that? Because that truth actually has some uncomfortable ramifications for all of us. And, and Paul speaks to that in Romans. In Romans 8, 16 and 17, this is, this is what Paul says about that. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that basically he's saying, if you have given your life to Christ and you're following him, the Holy Spirit identifies with your spirit saying, you are a child of God. Okay, so far so good. And if children, then heirs, that sounds great, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, it sounded good, provided we, what? Suffer. That was sounding so good up to that point. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Being a child of God, that sounds great. And an heir, even better. And glory, bring it on. And if it's all the same to you, God, we'll just skip that little part in the middle about me suffering. I don't have a spot in my upwardly mobile strategy to fit that one in. It doesn't fit in my portfolio. I don't have a spot for that. But this is the expectation for followers of Christ. And we see this in the increase in suffering and persecution for believers all over the world. A recent report on the persecuted church tells us that 360 million believers around the world are undergoing the highest level of persecution reported since that report began looking at the numbers 30 years ago. The report also says that last year alone, over 5,600 believers were killed for their faith. Now, we like to think sometimes that we're suffering here in America, and maybe we are. Mocked? Yeah, for sure. Treated unfairly? Quite often. Though certainly not at the level experienced by our brothers and sisters around the world, it begs the question, are we prepared to face even those things? Are we willing to be made fun of, to be treated unfairly, to lose that promotion, to lose social status? let alone our life. When I looked at my life, kind of took stock this week while I was preparing for this, I had to admit I'm feeling pretty comfortable. And so I have to ask, am I willing to be bold in my faith, putting Christ in the center of every action, every single day, and accept whatever happens as a result? Am I willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? But here's the, here's the cool thing. God doesn't just end there. He's got an awesome promise, and we're going to end with this here in 1 Peter 5.10. 1 Peter 5.10 says this, And after you have suffered a little while, and I know when you're in the middle of suffering, when things aren't going well, sometimes the things, it feels like there's no end, right? But God is saying, hey, when we put that up against eternity and everything I have planned for you, it actually is just a little bit. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, right? Not the God of some grace or the God of a little bit of grace or the, the God that gives you little kernels of grace like some cosmic Scrooge. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory, there's that glory again, in Christ, will himself, God himself, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So how do we get through the suffering to be like Christ? Through God's grace. The same way our brothers and sisters survive under the intense persecution that they're under. Because God's grace is perfect, and it's whole, and he has promised to bring us through all the way to glory. Provided we're willing to stand up and be counted now. So we can see how Jesus suffered under Pilate. We see how we're supposed to respond to that. Let's continue our worship, after which Glenn will talk about the crucifixion. So please stand. Jerry, you are just too tall. (laughs) 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 I am too short, one of the two. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Now we're to the part of the Apostles' Creed that states that he was crucified, died, and was buried. I'm hoping you stayed in John 19 as we're going to be reading from there starting in verse 16. Where the word of God in John 19 verse 16 says this. So he, or Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, and in Latin, and in Greek. Do any of you own a cross, whether a necklace, ring, maybe a tattoo, a wall decoration at home? Do any of you own a cross? A lot of us do. And have you ever spent any time contemplating the symbolism of that? Now, I know that my cross causes me to think of Christ and his sacrifice, and it's how I identify with Christ. But did you ever really contemplate it? I can't help to think back to Joseph way back in Genesis 50 when speaking to his brothers in verse 20 where the word of God says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Crucifixion was a horrible way of dying. It was used in various cultures, but the Romans used it extensively. It was thought, as, thought of as the most horrible, painful, torturous, and humiliating form of execution possible. The Romans used it as a spectacle to warn others. That's why they were mostly done on main roads, so people walking by would see them. We see that in verse 20 where the word of God says, Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. The pre-crucifixion torture wasn't done in a back room either. And then, to force them to carry their own cross through the streets to their death, it was meant to humiliate them and to show that Rome was the ultimate authority. The Jewish historian Josephus, who witnessed live crucifixions, called it the most wretched of deaths. Now, the Romans had various means of killing their enemies. Pilate could have chosen other methods. In Matthew 14, we read how and why John the Baptist was beheaded. It didn't have to be crucifixion. And that's why the Jewish leaders had to make the comment to Pilate recorded in verse 12 that says, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Crucifixion was the penalty for anyone considered to be an enemy of the state. And you know the Jewish leaders meant to humiliate Jesus and his followers. They wanted to crush this movement. And they needed Pilate to proclaim Jesus an enemy of the state for the crucifixion to happen. And they and the Romans knew 
that this type of death was meant to send a message. Yet, God was sending his own message. God took what was evil, a symbol of death and humiliation, and made it a symbol of life, a symbol of hope, a symbol of forgiveness, a symbol of triumph over evil, and a symbol of triumph over death. God also sent a message through Pilate when he placed the inscription on the cross saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He had it written in three languages, John tells us, Hebrew representing the Jewish nation, Latin representing the Roman politics, and Greek representing the Greek culture. Those three together represented the entire known world at the time. And not long after his death and resurrection, certain Jews, Romans, and Greeks would come to know Jesus as Savior. Our Lord Jesus was put to death for the entire human race. And this declaration by Pilate was a sign, and in this case a quite literal sign, pointing to that fact. Starting in verse 23, John focuses on what's happening at the cross. He begins with the soldiers dividing the spoils and casting lots for his garment. Once again, God takes something evil, man's greed, and uses it for good by fulfilling the prophetic words of Psalm 22:18, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The significance of this cannot be overlooked. William John Hendrickson, in his commentary on John, wrote that Jesus bore for us the curse of nakedness in order to deliver us from it. Also at the cross witnessing it all was Mary, Jesus' mom. His mom's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and John. All of them present to honor their Lord Jesus. Jesus has words of love for them in the midst of their grief. His words for them are to encourage them, to love and to care for each other. I can't imagine their grief, nor can I imagine how it sounded to them as he encouraged them to care for one another. But the text tells us from that time on, John took her into his home. Now with his work nearly complete, Jesus declares his thirst in verse 28. He receives a sponge soaked in wine vinegar, fulfilling another prophetic word from Psalm 69:21, And then again in verse 33, where the soldiers did not break his legs as they did with the other two. Again, fulfilling prophecy from Numbers 9:12, Exodus 12:46, and Psalms 34:20. God is filling this space with prophecy in order that when anyone looks back, when anyone looks back, they can see that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy and the true Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Messiah. Then he proclaimed the words of life for all that believe. And Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Please notice that it wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave it up. Even at the end, it was his choice to follow his father's will. Scholars and historians tend to highlight the gruesomeness of what Jesus endured, the pain and suffering during the pre-crucifixion torture and the pain of the cross. And what it reveals is, is the humanity of Christ. He was fully man. Jesus bore all the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual pain that man can inflict upon one. Yet on the cross, 
Jesus also bore something much worse. The wrath of God for all the sins of men. For every lie. For every lustful thought. For every word ever gossiped. Every moment of covetousness, greed, or idolatry. Jesus bore the weight of it all. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And only Jesus could do this as he was also fully God and he was sinless. John sums this up in 1 John 4.10 when he through the Holy Spirit writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus satisfied the full wrath of God against sin by bearing that sin for us. So that we, once we place our trust in him, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection, we can know that we are accepted and fully accepted by the Father. Jesus paid it all. And then John shifts again to directly after the cross and tells us of the two men who cared for his body following the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These two members of the Sanhedrin, or the ruling council of the Jews, cared for Jesus after his death on the cross. Joseph supplied the tomb that had never been used before and therefore had never seen decay. And Nicodemus, you might remember he was the one to come see Jesus in the middle of the night. He supplied the spices. Two men who quietly believed in Jesus during his life for fear of the Jews became prominent believers in his death. So now you have the context of this part of the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. But what does that mean for us today? Well, the text is pretty clear for us to see that Jesus, the sinless one, surrendered his life so that we can be set free from sin. The call for us is to humble ourselves, to repent from our sin, and to believe in Jesus through faith. Do you have any struggles in your life? Do you wonder if your life has any meaning or if it's just living for today? Do you feel that many times that life kind of has it out for you? That things just don't work out the way you planned or hoped? Maybe you're caught in a cycle of sin and just can't overcome it. Look to this cross. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Your good. He meant it for your good. You can trust Jesus. He won't fail you. I'm not saying your life is going to become Teflon-coated and problems will come, but, but they won't stick. What I am saying is that you can trust Christ no matter what comes. God has a plan for And it's a plan for good. God took a symbol of death turned it into a symbol of hope, a symbol of eternal life. As you see here and throughout Scripture, God is in control of the narrative. And He, along with you, if you're in Him, will prevail. Place your trust in Christ. If you already have placed your faith and trust in Christ, then know that it's a continual coming back to Him. Because none of us can live to the, the purity that God demands. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
turn back to him. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, turn to him for the first time. You can trust him. He is worthy of your trust and your life. He is worthy. Let us join together again in song to worship him. his name, isn't it? When you hear the name of Jesus, is that what you think? Worthy is his name. And I can't get my message up, so just bear with me. But worthy is his name, right? Worthy is the name of Jesus. And I think the application here is clear. From this text, that a man, that God sent a man, sent Jesus, right, his son, who is sinless, lived a sinless life here on earth, and, and came and, and was crucified, didn't owe any debt, was crucified on our behalf. And it says that he carried the weight of our sin. He carried it upon his shoulders, that he actually carried our sin. If you imagine all the sins of the world, right? That they were placed upon him. And we talked about how he suffered under Pilate, a guy that was a coward, a leader that was a coward, and that he was crucified, that he died. And he was buried. And I think sometimes when we, when we think about the fact that he was crucified, I think we, we may read about how he was crucified or the, the grueling or heart-wrenching things that happened to him as he went to the cross, right? And, and there are things that, that are like, man, wow, he was God though, right? He, he was Jesus. He, he probably didn't feel all of that. He probably, like God spared a little bit of mercy on him and he probably didn't feel that. No, 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 he did. He felt everything that happened to him, and it can be heart-wrenching to us, and it can be grueling to us to read and think, man, this guy, this, this Jesus, he was crucified for us. He was beaten and bruised for us and for our sins. A man who knew no sin. And what it should do for us, it should bring us to repentance. It should drive us to faith, Right? It should bring us to a moment in our life where we understand what Jesus did on the cross for us and it should drive us to our knees to say, Jesus, we need you. We're in need of a Savior. But yet I think there's one more truth that we have to look at here on Jesus' journey to the cross and after. We have to acknowledge that Jesus descended to the dead. That he actually descended to the dead, that, that it wasn't just like, man, oh, oh he, he, he died, right? But did he really die? No, he actually died. He descended to the dead, it says. If we look at Colossians 2, 14 through 16, or 15, it says this. <clears throat> By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside 
nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus, in Christ. See, when reading this passage, we acknowledge that Christ, or Jesus, he's fulfilled all the requirements up to this point on the cross, right? He's fulfilled all of the requirements of the law when it comes to the cross. If we see in verse 14, it says that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. So evidently, there was a record of debt that stood against us, that we owed something, that there was something that we had to pay, and it says that he canceled it, right? If someone came up to you today and said, hey, I want to pay the rest of your mortgage off, and I want to I pay your house off. You can have the house, you can keep it, but I'm going to take that debt, I'm going to put it on me, I'm going to cancel your debt, and therefore, you don't owe anything. What you did owe, you owe no more. Would you take it? I would. Be debt-free? Sounds pretty good, right? But even more than that, like even more than you think about that mortgage or something else big in your life, you think about eternal life in Jesus Christ, and you think about that and say, man, he canceled the debt of our sin. That we, as, as humans... We sinned against God. We, we broke the relationship, Adam and Eve. They broke it in the garden. They broke the relationship between us and the Creator. And what happened is, is now we are eternally damned to hell, right? That we have sin in our lives. We're broken. And it says that He paid the debt. He stood in our place. He, he took on our sin. Then we see that He moves to the realm of the dead. And what does it say here? He disarms by doing this. He said, it disarms the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Amen? By triumphing over them in Him, in Jesus, in Christ. By the death and burial of Jesus Christ, He triumphs over those authorities. He triumphs over those, those things. And it says that He puts them to shame. That no more do the, do the d- demonic forces or, or the, the principalities have any hold over those who are believers. That, 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 that sin does not have a hold on us anymore. When we actually become a believer, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, like Glenn talked about, when we accept that free gift of salvation that God gives, no more does sin have a hold on us. That we're free from it. That when he says this, it is finished. That it means it's done, that it's finished, that that sin does not control you anymore. That it's finished on the cross by what he did. That he enters the realm of the dead. See, the downward movement of Jesus here is complete in these words that the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians that we just read. See, he helps believers understand that, that by the virgin birth uh, of, of Jesus from the earth, or he moved from heaven to earth by the virgin birth, but then he also moved from earth to death, right? Through the crucifixion. And how does this impact us today? When we hear about the crucifixion, when we hear about Jesus' death, when we hear about the cross, how does it impact us today? What do we do about it and what does it mean for us? 
See, the thing is, is what makes Jesus descending into death so significant that, that he's gone before us. That he has gone before us. And what does that mean for us? It means that believers, as believers, as we put our faith and trust in Christ and we become uh, believers of Jesus Christ, that, that we don't have to fear death. Because Jesus went before us, he conquered it, right? I know death, like when, when we think about death, it can be a sobering thing. It can be something that we fear. It, it's been over the last couple of years, I've had to explain death to my, to my kids because of uh, so many different family members who have passed on. And, and so we use these, these different phrases of they've passed on or whatever. But death is real, right? Death is real. And we don't have to fear it as believers. See, the thing is, is that he paid the price for us. He canceled our debt. And the greatest thing about it is that we're going to find out on Sunday when we come back, right, that the resurrection, he conquered death. Amen? That he actually conquers death, that he rises from the dead. He, he has the resurrection, right? And we're going to talk about that on Sunday. But through his death, he put sin to death. He took it on himself. And what this journey that Jesus took to the cross does for us is that it summarizes the gospel, similar to the Apostles' Creed that we're going through, that it summarizes the gospel, it puts it in perspective for us, it, it gives us a hope in an eternal life with our Savior, right? That we can have hope in that, that we can have a confidence in that we know that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus, that we have no fear in death, no fear over sin, like sin has no hold on us anymore, that we actually can spend an eternity with Jesus, See, Jesus' life and death serve as the turning point for all of humanity. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, see, man's sin can be forgiven. Through his death, we can have life. And today, we're going to remember that through communion. We're going to take communion here in a, in a minute. And communion is what we take as believers to remember what Jesus did on the cross. And, and today it's very fitting because today as we celebrate Good Friday, what Jesus did on the cross, we're going to take communion to actually remember that. It says, you know, we need to examine ourselves and, and make sure that we're worthy of taking communion as believers. For a minute, I, I, I just want to, I want to maybe ask ourselves, you know, I think sometimes it's easy for us to forget the reality of what Jesus did on the cross for us. I think, I think sometimes we actually think about it or maybe it crosses our mind or maybe we get too busy in life and we just don't remember what Jesus did on the cross and, and we take our salvation pretty flippantly. I know I've been challenged with this this week as, as even, uh, you know, I get busy in life. And even as a pastor, you know, I, I, I admit my weaknesses, but I get busy in life and I don't actually take time to understand and really think through what Jesus did on the cross for me. The pain that he endured, the, the beating that he endured, the, the things that happened to him as we read the accounts of what happened on the crucifixion. Like, this is incredible what he did for me. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. I think sometimes we, we look over it. I think sometimes we're like, man, I accepted Christ, I'm saved. 
that's great. But do we truly remember, do we truly take time to understand what a Savior did for us for eternity? And that's what we're going to do here in a moment is just take a time to examine our lives. He calls us to remember. See, he was about to be betrayed by Judas and, and taken away to be crucified, as we know the story just before this. And, and he was being betrayed by, by Judas. And, and they came and they arrested him and they were, they were going to take him and crucify him. And right before all this, he was sitting at supper with his disciples during the Last Supper. And it says this in Matthew 26. He was sitting with them and he said, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. That the bread that we eat, the the little wafer that we take, has significance. That it's a representation for us to remember his body as it was broken for us, as it was beaten for us. He calls us to remember this as often as we eat, as it says in 1 Corinthians, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, to remember what he did on the cross. He calls us to remember, and then it says this, as we continue in Matthew 26, it says he, he took a cup with his disciples. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins that cup the little juice that we take or back then the wine that they took that that little cup of juice represents the blood that was spilled that was poured out for us do we understand the significance of it Do we understand the reality of it? Do we take it seriously? He calls us to remember. As he says in 1 Corinthians, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he goes on in Matthew chapter 26. In in verse 29, he says this, and, and I love this verse. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. That one day we'll get to sit and enjoy this with Jesus. That we'll get to spend eternity with him. That we don't have to fear death. That that sin doesn't have a hold on us anymore. That, That he gave his son to die for you and I. And all we have to do is, as Glenn said, we just have to accept the free gift. And maybe that's for you this morning. Maybe right there in your seat, you're like, man, I just want to accept Christ and I need to have a relationship with him. So in a moment, we're going to take communion and we've got the tables up here. And, and I want you to just sit if it's sitting for you. I want you to stand if if it's standing for you. If you want to kneel down and pray and talk to God, then do that. If you want to come forward and and pray, that's fine. Whatever it is for you, 
Maybe it's just sitting in your seat. Maybe you say, you know what? I, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus and, and I don't need to take communion right now. That's fine. Nobody's judging here. Whatever it is for you, I pray that Jesus, that God would move in your heart this morning or this evening. And then we take a moment to just think and reflect and remember what Jesus did on the cross for you, for me. So as we remember, take this moment. We're going to sing a song while we're doing that. And and as you feel compelled, as God's moving in your heart, come take communion. And maybe you take it as an individual. Maybe you'll come as a family and take it. Maybe as a couple. Whatever that is for you, let God move in your heart. We pray with me, God. We come before you humble. Understanding the weight of our sin was too great for ourselves to overcome. Too great for us to carry. That God, you sent your son to die in our place. To carry the sin of the world. Father God, we thank you for that. As we come before you to remember that remember the body and the blood. God, I just pray that we'd examine our hearts. That if there's someone in here who doesn't know you personally, maybe knows about you, we can have all the knowledge in the world of who you are, Lord. But unless we have a relationship with you and and we give our lives to you, we surrender to you, we know it's not easy, even as Glenn said, it can be or Jerry said they're suffering. But God, in the end, you win. In the end, we can have eternal life with you. So Father, move in the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.